You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at livethemessage.org. Good morning, church. So glad you're all here this morning. Beautiful January or February spring day, right? That's what today is, so I'm glad you're here in church. I do have a, uh, we're going to dive into God's word. I do have a short just confession that uh, I was not supposed to be standing before you this morning. Uh, This morning, we actually promoted and spoke about uh, Pastor Tony standing before you and talking about the problem of pain and suffering. How can a good God uh, allow for evil in this world? Those big questions I know we've all wrestled through and with um, at some point in our lives. But I got that dreaded phone call. You know, when we have a staff person scheduled to speak on a Sunday morning, I got the dreaded phone call on Friday that Tony got influenza. (laughs) And so uh, it was like, if it was a lot of other things, I would have said, you know, just toughen up, just, you know, suck it up and go for it. But influenza, I I didn't want to spread that love around here, so... So I was like, you, you stay home. And uh, so this message this morning was in here, and it was in here, but it was not in my, uh, like, written out. So, um, so we're calling a little bit of an audible. Bear with me. Uh, I'm really passionate about what's on my heart this morning, but it's all kind of come to, to be in the last 48 hours. Um, you can turn your Bibles in Isaiah chapter 40. This morning, we're going to deal with the question of, is faith compatible with science? Or vice versa, is science compatible with faith? Can you be a person of reason and intellect and also be a person of faith? Are they mutually exclusive? So this is a common question. Um, It's honestly not a question that I've had a personal uh, crisis of faith uh, with in my own life. I, I do come from a background in engineering and science. I worked as a nuclear engineer for the Navy for a little over three years. We, there was a group of us engineers that uh, disposed of the reactor compartments for, Na- for the Navy nuclear program. And so that's what we, that's what we did. That's the way my, my brain works. I do enjoy engineering. I enjoy mathematics. Um, but in my own story with the Lord, I never had a personal crisis of faith. Uh, and I, I attribute that more so to do with some of the influences that I had early on into my, in my intellectual pursuits that just... Uh, they never, they never created that dichotomy or that, um, that mutual exclusive choice that forced me to decide one way or another. Uh, one reason I chose the university that I chose to study, North Dakota State, go bison, um, was because the dean of engineering was a spirit-filled man of God uh, that began to speak into my life as a, as a high schooler. And he began to encourage me in my um, interest in mathematics and in science as well, and he, he gave me tours, and he really sold sold me on the university. So I went there, and I saw in him, his name was Dr. Otto Helwig, he's gone to be with the Lord since, but I saw in him an example of one who can perfectly walk in harmony following Jesus and faith, and also pursuing intellectually these pursuits in engineering, and he was internationally renowned as a hydrologist and water resource engineer, uh, you know, written books and published papers and all that, highly regarded. His freshman class, or he does a freshman required class for all engineering students, where at the end of it, he shares his testimony of encountering Jesus in college as an undergrad. Um, And that that stuck with me. Later on in my college career, I got to go live with him and his wife in Rwanda, Africa. And his his way of thinking about the world and the universe and not sparsing that out from his faith really gripped my heart. And I realized, wow, there's there's no reason for me to to draw these lines of, of separation unnecessarily. And so that's kind of where I'm coming from this morning. 
Um, although I've never had a personal crisis in my faith in this, in this question in sp- specifically, I know that many have. And I know that you'll talk with people who are in the thralls of these questions and or uh, asking these questions. And they're good questions. And as followers of Jesus, you can wade into these questions with a, with a certain level of confidence. This morning, I'm not trying to create scientists. I'm not trying to, to make you something. If, if, you, if that's not the way your brain works, if you're more of a right brain person, that's, that's totally fine. We need us all to be the body together. But you can push people and you can embrace these conversations and you can push people towards real answers that exist um, in, a reasonable, in a reasonable way to pursue both faith and science. So look at this passage in Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 27. The prophet Isaiah calls out the nation of Israel for essentially accusing God of being too mysterious and not making his ways obvious enough. And isn't that oftentimes what those in the realms of science would claim, that if God were real, why wouldn't he just make himself so plainly evident all around us? Isaiah uh, chapter 20, verse 27. So why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. He is understand, or his understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, And young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This morning, my hope is you would walk out of here with a greater faith in God's sovereignty, his sufficiency, and his power. Creator God has revealed himself. And there's a revelation you can receive of God that's apart from science. I I feel like science points us towards that revelation, and we'll see that this morning. So my aim this morning is to debunk that idea that, that faith and science are, are incompatible. The opposite is actually true. Here's our main idea for this morning. God is creator of science. Science reveals mysteries that God created. He is the, he's the one who set these governing uh, principles, these governing laws of order into motion. Or as Richard Swinburne said, I am postulating a God to explain why science explains the why, the why science can explain uh, in, in the first place. I do not deny that science explains, but I postulate God to explain why science explains. The reason it's coherent, the reason it's understandable is because there is an intelligent being that's set it all in motion. So in this scientific age of technology, human innovation, and even in the last 150 years of the rise of uh, Darwinian evolution, there's been this unnecessary idea that's arisen that you cannot be both scientifically reasonable and be a person of faith. And definitely the opposite is true. So let me give you just a quick kind of fly overview of what we're gonna cover this morning. Some of the quick differences between faith and science, not so much drawing a line, but showing how they they both serve a, a purpose. Science tells us about natural things, things in the world around us that we view with our physical eyes. Faith tells us about supernatural things of which time and time again, humanity attests to and gives account of these supernatural phenomena all over the, all over the globe. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But faith tells us about it. It gives us language to talk about and explain those phenomena, the supernatural aspect of our reality. Science tells us about finite things, beginning and end, measurable, repeatable things. 
Faith tells us about eternal things. Just as Ecclesiastes tells that eternity is written on our hearts. We all ask that question. What happens after we die? And faith tells us about these eternal things. Science tells us about tangible, measurable things. Faith tells us about intangible things that do not fit in the confines of science. Things like morality. Things like commitment and love. Things like purpose. Science cannot begin to address those major aspects of our humanity. Major aspects of of our existence on this planet are in those realms of morality and purpose and commitment and love. And so faith gives us language and a way of viewing those things. This does not mean that they don't overlap. We'll see this morning that they can actually come into a beautiful harmony. Even Even in our very first week, we talked about the historical authority of, of scripture, the his, historicity of scripture. And that in itself like, is a science of the, the study of the historical credibility of, of, the, of scripture. So it's not that they have to be um, separate, they have certain roles. So that's what we're gonna break down this morning. I have this to tell you, Christ, or Christ, Christ followers can be amazing scientists. As one of my favorite authors says, John Lennox, who is a world-renowned mathematician from Oxford, This is what he said. No Christian has anything to fear from true science. Many Christians have made and continue to make first-rate contributions to science, and that is our heritage. Um, You know, as as some would espouse that Christianity is, is in opposition to intellect and thinking, you look back at history, and time and time again, there have been great thinkers that have come out of Christianity that have had no conflict with their intellect and their reason and their faith. And so this morning, I, I, don't wanna, I don't want you to, I don't, I'm not creating scientists, I'm not trying to make you something you're not, but I want us to be articulate, articulate people. I want us to be people that don't get insecure and on the defensive when it comes to questions about science. This is what St. Augustine said well before the Enlightenment. He said, now it is a disgraceful and dangerous thing for an infidel to hear a Christian, presumably giving, presumably giving the meaning of Holy Scripture, talking nonsense on these topics. And we should take all the means to prevent such an embarrassing situation. How are they going to believe concerning the resurrection of the dead, the hope of eternal life, and the kingdom of heaven? So just as I, I talked about how science is for natural things, faith is for supernatural things, if we, if we can't talk coherently in a, in a respectful and... and um, a coherent, intelligible way about things of the, of the natural, we may cause unneeded stumbling blocks as we venture then into the realms of faith that do require the supernatural. Many aspects of the gospel require the supernatural. The resurrection of the dead, the hope of eternal life and the kingdom of heaven and many of the things we even just sung about prior. So let us be articulate, let us be confident, let us not be on the defensive, but instead wade into these waters and hear people out and then search for answers. So here's some of the roles of science for followers of Jesus. You're a follower of Jesus. Science can play a role in your experience on this planet. One is this, science articulates, articulates the order of the universe. There's an order to everything, a structure to it, systems within it. And science reveals that. That's what science is, the discovery of that order. And God is the grand order. 
Science is this discovery of that order. Johannes Kepler said, the chief aim of all investigation of the external world should be to discover the rational order and harmony which has been imposed on it by God and which he revealed to us in the language of mathematics. So you can think of any field of discovery, any field of science, and within it is a certain inherent order that science is revealing. If you, if you look at um, the, science, the field of, of chemistry and the, the molecular uh, interaction of uh, gases, liquids, and solids. Within it, there's a certain order that it's discovering and it's giving language for. It's already there and we're just discovering it. If you look at the, the world of uh, the field of physics and the, you know, it's a broad field of uh, the study of motion and electricity and magnetism and heat and on and on and on, there, there is embedded in that laws that are there waiting to be discovered. If you look at the, the field of biology, the study of life as we know it. In it are certain systems and patterns that are inherent in biology that we're discovering. So you see order, you see laws, you see systems that are there already and science gives it language, it, it discovers them. And that's what science does for us as followers of Jesus. That's no respecter of faith paradigms. Two is this, it reveals the fine tuning of the universe. And this is, this is an area of, of discovery and research that's exploded over the last several decades, the fine-tuning of the universe. There's a researcher named Paul Davies. As you, you could look him up. He's written several books now on the fine-tuning of the universe. But it's this idea that just the, the apparent view of the universe and the world as we know it looks as though it's, it's had to, it's required to have been tinkered with by an intelligible being. And so those that espouse scientism or naturalism, you know, they, they would maybe propose extraterrestrial life or multi-universe theories to explain it away. But for those of us that look at the evidence before us, it points us towards an eternal God, a starting point, a first cause. You know, in the science being the, the study of cause and effect, there has to be a first cause. And, and God makes that as the logical, the logical conclusion. So just a few examples. Some are really obvious. Obviously, like you, you're, as a teenager, maybe you thought about these things. You know, if the, if the earth is, was any further away from the sun, it'd be too cold. If it was any closer, all water would evaporate. Those are fine-tuning. And, and scientists say, you know, within 2% that the earth is placed within our solar system. It'd be perfect for human life. Or you think of the rotation of the earth. If it was any faster, you know, winds would be unsustainable. It would be unsurvivable. If it, if it was any slower, day and night would be... Um, unlivable, it'd be too cold at night. Um, all of those things, those are, those are really easy examples to, to pick out of fine-tuning. But over the last several decades, there's been more and more and more understanding in all these different fields, both on the astronomical level and the subatomic level, of the fine-tuning of the universe. And they point us towards this God who, with such precision, with such intimate purpose, set it all into motion. And I'm not a deist that would believe that he set it into motion and then just like fled the scene. Obviously within the gospel, we see a God who set it all in motion and who's been uh, intimately a part of it from the beginning. Here's just two quick examples. This is what Paul Davies talks about in his book. He, he gives the example of the, the four forces of nature, the gravitational force, electromagnetic force, and then um, the, the two nuclear forces, strong and weak nuclear force. Those four forces of nature that, that have to exist for the universe to exist as we know it. But the, the ratio of these forces have been finely tuned within, within to, to correlate with each other to, to such crazy precision. 
He gives the example of the, the ratio between the electromagnetic, electromagnetic force and the strong nuclear force. That if, if they changed by, by as much as one part in 10 to the 16th, as one was 16 zeros, one part in 10 to the 16th power, if it changed by even that amount, the world could not exist as we know it. That ratio between those two forces, that there's no explanation, you know, science could never give any explanation for how those forces came to be, they just are. Uh, but then the ratio within those forces have been finely tuned to within that, that slim of um, a ratio. Uh, the, he gives the example of the, the ratio between the electromagnetic force and the gravitational force. That one's even more mind-blowing. If that were, if that were to change by even uh, one part in 10 to the 40th, that's 10, or one with uh, 40 zeros behind it. I mean, it's kind of mind-blowing. You can't really imagine a number like that, um, that the universe could not produce stars like it does. It could not, it would either produce all, if it, if it was reduced by a little bit, it would only produce small stars, little minuscule, cute little stars. And so the universe could not exist as we know it. And if it was, if it was increased by a little bit, it would only create these just raging furnaces of huge stars and the universe could not exist as we know it. And that's just like two mind-blowing examples on an astronomical level, but then Every field, as scientists continue to look into these fields, there are more and more and more fine-tuning principles are being revealed. That there is this grand mastermind, this great intelligent genius of the universe that has to exist and had to have set it in motion. This is what Arno Penzias um, said, Nobel Prize winner of physics in 1978. He said, in astronomy leads us to a unique event. A universe which was creation out of nothing. One with the very delicate balance needed to provide exactly the right conditions required to permit life. And one which has an underlying, one might say supernatural plan. And he would not, he's not a Christ follower, but even him, he has to leave that reality open that it points to a supernatural being and a supernatural plan that was set in motion. Third is this. Science can be used to better our lives. So we, we are not at war with science. Science can actually increase the quality of human life, the comfort of our lives, the way we communicate, the way we tr- uh, transport ourselves around, around the world. And those are positive things. I'm not saying we mindlessly accept all technology or uh, embrace it all. I think with humility, we wade into those waters and ask that question, does this make our lives better? And science can do that. But it all fl- flows out of a discovery of certain unchangeable ways that God has set in motion. That's inherent. And in order for those things to be discovered, there has to be an order there to be, just, to, just, to be discovered that governs the universe. Fourth is this. Again, addressing the limitations of science. Science answers the question of how, and we can embrace that how. You look at a leaf, you look at a, an insect, and you ask all these questions, all these, it's like hanging out with a kid. We all have those innate questions of, how do they do that? How does that work? <laughs> How is that so predictable? Why does that happen all the time? Those are the, science, those are the questions of science. But there are, there are other questions that kids ask, and they are the questions of who and why that science cannot address. Maybe this is the part where I should address evolution. I would say, you know, over the last 150 years, some of the greatest contentious debate between faith and science has been in the realm of this talk of the theory of evolution. And I would, I would just encourage us to not be on the defensive when it comes to the theory of evolution. 
There's, there's nothing that evolution can espouse. Obviously, those within the realm of scientism and naturalism can overspeak, and they can give a reason why we, we, don't have a, we, don't, we don't need God anymore, but we can quickly pick that apart, and I will do that quickly. Evolution is no threat to an eternal creator God, designer. Here, just look, let's just look at this, this quotation by Richard Dawkins. This was 30 years ago in his book, The Blind Watchmaker. He said, natural selection, so like the the needed mechanism of, of macroevolution. He says, natural selection, the blind, unconscious, automatic process which Darwin discovered and which we now know is the explanation for the existence and apparently purposeful form of all life has no purpose in mind. If it can be said to play the role of a watchmaker in nature, it is that of a blind watchmaker. And that's where he coined that phrase. There are two really glaring issues with this statement, and I'll just quickly point them out to you as to why you do not have to be on the defensive when it comes to evolution. Um, and I'm not saying Richard Dawkins is not brilliant. He's a very smart dude, and I would never want to debate him or something. But, and on top of that, I don't believe that Richard Dawkins is trying to be deceptive. I don't believe that he, that I believe he's being genuine. He's, he's, for him, this is where it leads. But there are some really glaring issues with this explanation of the way the, the, the universe as we know it came to be um, as somehow explaining away our need for God. You know, there always has to be a first cause. He's talking within the framework of cause and effect, and he never gives us an answer for a first cause. So what this does not relieve him of the burden of proof of where this all, this system of evolution and the mechanism of natural selection came from. That's the first big glaring issue. It does not relieve him. It already assumes that there is a universe cohesive or that's conducive for life and that there are certain living organisms already able to be mutated and change over time into something as we know it today. So there's all these, and obviously still there's huge issues with macroevolution in terms of some of the, the, the huge holes in the theory. But secondly, I want to show you what he does here. He personifies a needed mechanism for evolution. He calls, he calls the mechanism of natural selection a blind watchmaker, unconscious blind watchmaker. And a watchmaker then gives you a picture of an actual person, but he's unconscious and blind. Obviously, any mechanism, if you look at your iPhone or something, it's, it's obviously blind and it's unconscious. But that blind, unconscious iPhone still requires a designer and a creator. So one thing he's done, they, they subtly do it. And I'm not, again, I'm not, I don't think he's just trying to be deceptive, but he misses it. <laughs> he's personifying a mechanism, which is impossible. You, you cannot personify a mechanism. It doesn't, the intelligence doesn't come out of nothing. Intelligence is put there by an intelligent being. And so evolution, we're, we're, not, we're not threatened by evolution. I, I believe there's huge issues uh, with the theory of, of evolution. I'm not going to get into that, but at the same time, I believe there are very respectable, reputable, theistic revol- uh, evolutionists um, that exist on the planet. <laughs> and they are ones who are Christ followers. They love Jesus. They uphold the orthodoxy of scripture, the, um, the authority of scripture. And yet they, as they look at um, biology or any of the different uh, fields of study, they believe that it, that theory could hold water. But uh, uh, maybe I'll get to that another day. Uh, I went to a faith and science conference where literally they, they gave uh, Christian perspectives from different fields of study, geology, biology, genetics, uh, astronomy. 
And honestly, different Christians came to different conclusions about whether the earth is uh, you know, billions of years old or whether it's a few thousand years old. And honestly, I think there was, there was interesting perspectives they all brought, but none of it's threatening to our faith. It doesn't relieve us of our need of, of an initial creator and a designer that's still at work on the earth today. And science can never tap into those realms of the who and why. So then, what about our pursuit of, of faith, you know, from an intellectual perspective? You know, faith speaks of what science cannot. Therefore, we should embrace wholeheartedly the submission to King Jesus as the one who gives us a framework for morality, gives us a coherent language for relating to one another. And that's what faith does to us, is it, is it all of a sudden uh, makes this whole other realm of our existence just explode with life, life-giving fruit. You know, I think one, one thing that makes this book so beautiful is that it has stood the test of time from generation to generation. You know, with all of the scientific theories that have come and gone, scientific breakthroughs that have come and gone, this book has surpassed all of that because God in his infinite wisdom didn't write a science textbook. He, he, re- he wrote a, a timeless revelation of his redemptive work on the earth, which is not a science textbook. If he were to write a science textbook, our minds would explode. We would not understand what's going on. We haven't arrived in science. We haven't figured it all out. So if he were to write even what's going to be discovered in the next couple hundred years, we would, it would be completely unintelligible to us. So he didn't write a science book. Instead, he wrote a beautiful, timeless book that continues to speak into generation the hearts of humanity century after century after century. This idea within scientism that that science can explain everything is absolutely non-coherent, self-refuting statement. And as I said, you look to purpose, love, ethics, and obviously the supernatural, and you know that science is only relevant to that which can be measured, tested, and repeated. In my office, I have a two-volume work on on miracles. That's what the title of the book is. It's called Miracles. It's by a a world-renowned New Testament scholar named Craig Keener. And in this book... With meticulous, you know, painstaking detail, he goes through first the, the work of, on a global scale, region by region, giving accounts of the miraculous being attested, um, you know, throughout different cultures and language groups and people groups, you know, getting rid of the idea that it's just some societal, sociological um, um, result or it's just a result of some sort of cultural thing. Again, he shows that every region of the earth, there are people that attest to the miraculous work of God in their midst. The, the other volume then he talks about throughout human history, the last 2,000 years. There's many in the Christian uh, church that believe that miracles stopped with the uh, completion of the canon or when the apostles died. Um, and he, in painstaking detail, goes through the last 2,000 years and he gives account year after year, decade after year, century after century of these accounts of the miraculous happening through the last 2,000 years, pointing us towards obvious, the, the innumerable accounts of the miraculous. And many in this place have seen the supernatural at work. And this, it's this book, this revelation from God that gives us a framework to actually grapple with those realities. Or 
for in, in the idea of, of science, those that espouse a scientism, they just kind of turn a blind eye to it. And they quickly you know, dismiss it or they try to explain it away. When the, like the innumerable accounts are supernatural happens, the miraculous happens. If you leave morality, morality up to science, it leads to eugenics and the Holocaust. And I know that there have been many atrocities that have been carried out under the name of church, religion, faith. But I would, I would propose to you that that's not the true gospel. It's not the, the true message of what Jesus talked about. It's people that have hijacked religion uh, for their own purposes. But science has no basis for morality. There's zero foundation to come, out, come up with any sort of absolute ethic. And so morality left up to science leads to eugenics and the Holocaust. If you leave purpose up to science, it says you are an accident. There, there, there is no purpose for your life. In fact, you just traveled here a billion years ago on the back of a meteor or by extraterrestrial life and you just kind of came to be. You are a big cosmic accident. But we all know when we wake up in the morning, there's something else embedded in our heart. It's the image of God implanted on us. These attributes of God embedded into humanity that only can be ex- experienced and known in the realm of faith. Third, or sorry, second is this. I'm already jumping ahead. Second is this. <laughs> the role of faith is it reveals God. That burning question of who. Who's out there in the universe? Who set this all in motion? Who set these laws that govern the universe? In the very first very first verse of this book, it says, in the beginning, God. That's the first cause. That's, that's the, the answer to that burning question. Who is it? He's the first cause, and that's something science can never do. Science can theorize all sorts of ideas, anything other than the creator of the universe. But the Bible says, in the beginning, God says that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Let's look at this passage in Colossians chapter one. It says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things are created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. What I love about that description is it does um, surpass all theories within science and actually speaks coherently of an actual scientific, intelligible being um, still that's surpa- you know, surpassed from generation to generation over the last 2,000 years. He, has, he holds all things together. He created the visible and the invisible. So this book reveals this personal creator God. Thirdly is this. Faith in this book reveals purpose. You were created in the image of God right at the very beginning. It sets humanity apart from the rest of creation and puts on you the fingerprint of God and says, you are created in the image. That's really good. That's what God says. There's, there's certain aspects of humanity that you do not find in the rest of creation. Our capacity for relationship with God, our ability to walk in godly dominion and authority, other created life do not have those capacities. I believe our capacity for creating things, innovating, surpasses all the rest of creation. And there's so many more other aspects of our uh, image bearing that I, I feel like are yet to be known and we will not know fully until we stand before our king. But you are created in the image of God. You're not an accident. 
Look at this passage, Ephesians chapter one. Verse five, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. There's no question about it in that passage. You're not an accident. You're predestined according to the purpose of his will. That's a threefold promise of his purposeful intent for your life. That he, even before he started what from our perspective looks like a big human exper- experiment, he, he had predestined a plan and he has a purpose that's gonna fit perfectly in accordance with his plan. In this book, and as we walk in relationship and faith with him, we, that's revealed to us that we have a purpose upon our lives. And fourth is this. This book and faith reveals the answer for the human dilemma, which cannot be denied. You don't have to live very long in this planet to recognize our need for God. That inherent in all of us is sin, pride, that we all contribute to the chaos on this planet. And I, I'm astounded that as I talk with individuals from different worldviews, different you know, atheists, agnostics, uh, across the board, there's no one that I've met that I, as I look them in the eyes, they can tell me that they're a perfect person. Everyone say, no, no, I'm not perfect. You know, we might have disagreement about what that standard for perfection is, but we all know innately in our soul, in our heart, when we lay our pillows, our heads on our pillows at night, that we are not perfect beings, that instead we contribute to the chaos in this planet. We, we contribute to the, the pain and the suffering. And Tony's gonna talk about that uh, more next week as well. There is a human dilemma that science has no answer for. They would dismiss it as survival of the fittest, but that sends us down a crazy trajectory uh, in terms of morality and ethics, if it's survival of the fittest. This book gives us a coherent Um, framework for then venturing into those questions of where this came from. And then ultimately this book reveals the hope for all of humanity, that God didn't set all this in motion. We turned into rebellion and then he he left the scene, fled the scene, but instead he, he, he walked into it himself and he took it upon himself through the person of Jesus Christ. And it's that Hope for humanity that science can never point us to. Let's look at one last passage in Romans chapter five. I'm gonna ask uh, Adrian to come forward. Romans chapter five. It's a beautiful passage which summarizes the, the story of the gospel, God's redemptive story, so concisely. But it says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. We know from the beginning that this has been in our hearts, this tendency towards selfishness and pride, anything that's self-serving, that's what we all tend towards. He gave us the law, the law, the old covenant, to be like a tutor, to be like a guide that points us to our need for God. It makes it even more evident I believe it's self-evident in the conscious of man. But then beyond that, he gives us the law to make it crystal clear. Like there's no, no debate about it. We know we've all committed adultery in our heart. We've all lied. We've all dishonored our parents. You know, you know the laws. But then look, but j- jump down to verse 18. 
It says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you don't wanna know what there is to come after we die. There's an eternal life. And this book actually tells us about that. He tells us a way to experience that eternal relationship with the creator God and through the person of Jesus Christ. He is the only hope for humanity. This is something I believe we all need to experience and know for ourselves. If you'd all stand in this place, I feel led to, to end in this way. I know this is a different message because we are kind of speaking more to the, the intellect than to the heart, but God wants us to love, love him with our minds as well. So that's not bad. Um, we can love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But I wanna do something this morning. I, I want to pray for those in this place that are in the fields of education, science, engineering, technology, any of those realms, or if you're studying uh, in those fields, I want us to pray for you. And I'm gonna pray a prayer of anointing and favor upon you and insight and encouragement in your heart. So if that's you, would you raise your hand? If you're in any of those fields of education, uh, science, technology, engineering, awesome. Yeah, I knew we'd have lots. So I'm gonna pray this prayer. Just receive in faith this prayer upon you. God's got a purpose over your life. And Lord, I pray over these individuals just for a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit, of anointing, of insight, of innovation, encouragement from you, Lord, that for them, there would be no compartment in their life that somehow this part of their life has to be separated from their relationship and faith with you. But instead, Holy Spirit, you'd wake them up in the night with insights and ideas, concepts, truth that you set in motion. And Lord, it would unlock new things, it would unlock new discoveries, new innovations in their fields. I pray in your mighty name. God, I pray for those in education, administrators, um, faculty, teachers, God, I pray for a fresh boldness and confidence to walk into those fields with the burning gospel of Jesus Christ on their heart, the good news of Jesus Christ, of which science and discovery can never lead us in and of itself. I pray that they'd walk into those environments with a whole, a whole new fresh authority upon themselves. In your mighty name, God, these are ones that are sent into these spheres. They're, they're sent there by you to be influenced, to be light in the darkness, to be ambassadors of your kingdom, which gives so many answers to the questions of our heart. Secondly, I wanna, I wanna pray for those in this place who have had their own crises of faith when it comes to faith and science and intellect. And I just want, I want you to have an opportunity to respond to the Lord. So right now, if that's you, just respond to God. Lord, I pray of those individuals in this place that have had serious doubt. There's no condemnation in this place for that wrestling. It's just like that passage in Isaiah 40 that we, that we read. There's this aspect of us that's frustrated that God would make it, wouldn't make it even more obvious than he has. So God, I pray for a release from that, that bondage of doubt and unbelief. The Father, they'd see the evidence before them of a creator loving God that's revealed himself to humanity. He's calling them into relationship. God, just give them that insight. Give them that, that clarity of mind. 
God, all the, the lies, the whispers of the enemy would be shut up right now in the name of Jesus. They'd they'd experience a release of faith to see things as they are. That we are natural beings, we're supernatural beings. Hallelujah, Lord. I pray over everybody here this morning that this week would be a week full of worship, of awe, of adoration, of wonder, of the majesty of God. You are so good. You're so good, God. And I pray we'd open up our eyes and we recognize all that you're doing around us and all that you have done, all that you've set in motion. And it would set loose in our hearts a fresh spirit of worship, thanksgiving to you, Lord, in your name. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at livethemessage.org.